Hello everyone and welcome back to the Mystery Theory Podcast. Today you're going to have to excuse a few things, including my voice. I've been kind of sick lately with, I don't know what it is though, laryngitis, losing the voice and kind of weird headaches, but not really fever off the floor or I don't know. And it's super, super cold today, so I have to, on top of the uh, regular heat, I had to put a heater close to me or I'm going to (laughs) freeze. So, if you can hear something in the background, just the normal puppies around and, of course, there is a huge heater (laughs) trying to keep me warm somewhat close to me, so... Welcome everyone to the Mystery Podcast and today we're going to talk about something that ugh, I almost feel silly saying it but it's kind of a different case. Um, they all are but some are more unique than others and in this case it's because I saw the text messages myself, I saw the public court appearances, I watched as the suspect was arrested, um, photographed naked, I mean we have to blurry his private parts and kind of thing and I could hear him defend himself, the way he did it, how he moved, how he, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that uh, I have to watch and read and in order to share with you today's podcast. So now if you're thinking, oh my goodness, you joined the police force. No, no, not really. Uh, I'm nothing special. You can see all of this too if you watch the HBO documentary Who Killed Garrett Phillips. Now, if you don't have HBO, I found it somewhere on the YouTube world too available because I recommended to somebody who didn't have it. So look it up. It's there. You can watch it and then come back here and tell me whatever you think it's the truth to you by watching everything how it kind of developed now i have to say that hbo took a huge risk um, and i'm a risk assessor in my life so you know some things are really not worth it to me and i kind of have to see the end of the story before i decide to share it And in this case, um, HBO went with a story. I mean, the suspect from the beginning to the end. um, And even though this was developing and they did not know how it was going to end because it laid in the hand of one judge in the end. So even for them, it was a matter of piecing things together and see what the ending would be like. Now, this documentary is about three hours long. So, if you're sick like I was and you feel like you watch, you want to watch something that you can make up your mind without somebody telling you what they think, it's three hours, but it really flies by because you really want to know what's coming next. Um, 
in the documentary you will see and listen this is not based only on the do documentary i'll explain i'll explain but still talking about the documentaries you can see the interviews key witnesses text messages recorded phone calls between between dispatcher and different authorities and key players in this case and everything in my opinion you need to make quote-unquote sense out of this story that sadly ends up being more about let's crucify nick instead of the horrible killing of a 12 year old boy you know it's it's sad that it became so much about who they thought was the killer that garrett's name is not as well known as the suspect at the time name now as you know i like to keep an open mind and i watch several documentaries every time i am going to share with you a case i read articles court appearances i try to watch every single interview i google them i search them on um, youtube and everything i try to do as much as i can so i can at least have the basics that most people had but put it together in kind of a puzzle now you guys know me i never follow the narrative of a documentary they usually have one view and try to show you how they're right right if they believe that somebody's guilty they will show you everything you must know to believe that this person is guilty and uh, you know even if they believe that they're innocent they're gonna do that i mean that's pretty much what the documentary is all about right but again if you've been on my channel i like to use my brain so no thank you there are plenty of cases i covered where the most popular documentary i don't agree with and I have no problem giving you my reasons why. Remember the case of the guy, uh, I think it was um, Fear Thy Neighbor. Okay, uh, I can't remember what was the episode or... Okay, anyways, this is the, the what happened. It was um, a black male and a white older male that lived next to each other. And the older guy was speaking on the younger guy. And there was, you know, one of, uh, there was one, one instance where, you know, the younger neighbor and he was, I think he was doing an oil change or something on his, do you remember the story? If you've been on my channel, you probably do. Um, he was changing the, the oil in his truck and then the older guy came and said, hey, you're you're so poor that you can't take it to a garage and basically started the whole thing and picked up a fight with a guy that he had no chance with because this was a younger guy he was taller than him he was more fit and you know the narrative in the documentaries was like oh poor guy i mean he said something mean and no but really it wasn't one thing that he said that was mean it was like he was picking up a fight and that was not what they portrayed in their documentary. So I 
oftentimes disagree with documentaries, but you know, it's it's just one of those things that I want you to know before I start this story. This is going to be an emotional case. It's going to be sad. Um, it shouldn't have happened as always. It touches on how accusations have a big impact to the point that when you accuse somebody of something, even if there is not enough proof, it can ruin somebody's life forever. We're not talking about, I'm going to give you a hard time in this couple of years are going to be hard for you. This is, I'm going to give you a hard couple of years or six months or two days or five hours and then everything's going to go away. No, this is what we're going to go through in this case. I think that we can all learn a few lessons here. So even though I don't wish this on anyone, I want you to put yourself in the mother's or the family um, side And I also want you to think about the person that's been accused of committing this crime with zero physical evidence or anything really to convict him. It will hurt on either position, whatever position you assume. I can assure you that it's that it's not a good place to be at. And I wish that nobody has to go through ever Uh, that horrible situation but I think that is the only way we can find empathy understanding and even use these emotions in our everyday lives okay well today's case took place in a very small town well very small town because it's in New York State but really it's it's not a very small town Uh, it kind of depends where you live, I guess, is how small you think this is. But this is in Potsdam, New York. This is not New York City. Again, it's upstate, small town, about 17,000 residents. And it's described as clean, homey. People felt safe there. Everyone knew each other. And I can totally relate to that. We're moving to a Okay, we're going to move outside a town that is about a quarter of the size of this small town. So I can totally see it. I mean, when people were describing this place, I could see it myself. And I get that same feeling, you know. I come here to Salt Lake City and I feel like I am driving by a bunch of strangers. I am buying eggs in... I don't know anybody, even though I've been living in the same place for about same city or, you know, surrounded areas for about 20 years. But in this kind of town, I mean, everyone knows each other typically. And most people know each other since they were wearing diapers. I mean, literally, they probably went to school together, their neighbors, their work together. At some point, you get the idea. I mean, this is the town where people knew and know each other, and sometimes a bit too much. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the uh, details of the story before I get to the story. So it's, it's kind of confusing, but bear with me. Marissa was a college student who, on the summer of 2010, moved to Potsdam. Um, again, this is upstate so very close to the border 
with Canada. She loved her school and loved the town and found it、um, cute, clean. And she thought that she would rent an apartment that she could afford and she could share with her boyfriend. And they did find it on 100 Market Street. Now, this is an old building, but it looks very clean. I, I saw it in the documentary. I can see the appeal, I can see the old town, like old village kind of feeling that you get from it. And it was in a beautiful, very picturesque kind of street. Now, Marissa and her boyfriend were not your typical tenants. I mean, they are college kids that ended up renting. An apartment that they could afford in an area where there were more like families and kind of your typical neighborhood and not so much college kids. And believe me, this is a small town, but there are there's a lot of college activity because there's so many of them within 10 miles. And I'll get into that later. Now, again, they were surrounded by families and people in other stages of their lives, so they didn't really make many friends. But they knew their neighbors. I mean, they knew who lived next door. Maybe not close friends, but they knew them. The next door neighbor was、um, a single mom with two boys. And the,、uh, the father, I should say, of the boys, Robert Phillips Jr., Died of a brain aneurysm、uh, when Garrett, in this case, was,、uh, I think he was two, almost three years old when the father died. So you would know that the boys were around because they were always skating, they're using,、uh, especially Garrett, his ripstick,、uh, usually in the front of the apartment, or sometimes you can even hear him in the hallways, you know. Being boys. The mom was a typical single working mom that worked very hard to support them and seemed like a responsible mom who was raising very independent and mature for their age children because of the situation as a single mom. You know, sometimes, you know, when, when, when it's a one parent household,、uh, Depending on their schedule, sometimes they can't pick them up from school. You know, they get a key and they're responsible to get it in and maybe heat up dinner before she gets home. You know, the boys had chores and responsibilities, and you could see that,、uh, that they had to share a lot of things that were not too much to ask for, honestly. And again, pretty much a typical one responsible parent household. Now, on October 24th, 2011, Marisa got home to her apartment complex on 100 Market Street around 4 15. i s a and her boyfriend started to make dinner around 5.、Um, well, they started work on dinner about 4 30, but they were done at around 5 p.m. So they decided to go to their bedroom and eat while they watched、uh, Dexter. I love Dexter, and apparently they did too. Now, at that time,、uh, Shannon, who was、uh, dating Andrew, okay, I'm just trying to give you a big picture. Remember, this is a,、um, 
I think it's a two-story, maybe even taller apartment building. Let's picture like a brick building, older building. And um, there were, of course, other people in the building. In this case, it was Shannon and Andrew who lived in the, well, Andrew lived in the apartments. And Shannon was visiting her boyfriend and they happened to be outside the building. They were kind of on the side where the window of um, Garrett's apartment would face. And um, they were just minding their own business, not really paying attention. But at one point, Marissa, the one with the boyfriend eating dinner, and Shannon, the one with her boyfriend downstairs outside changing the tire, they both started to hear some loud noises. Now, Shannon looked up because it sounded like it came from the second floor, but she couldn't see anything really. Marisa decided to mute the television since she was inside so she could pay attention to the noises that were coming from the next door apartment. Marisa, with tears in her eyes, you have to watch it. I mean, I saw her. She mentioned in this little interview and she also tells in her police statement that she heard something like ow or no um, and she said that i think in the documentary andrew her boyfriend said that sounded like a child that was very very scared and then in the end they heard help so marissa i mean props to this girl she did the right thing she's a college student she just got home she's eating dinner minding her own business if i would have heard some commotion i don't know if i would have muted the television to listen to what they were saying so props to them for doing that and she just didn't wait she got up went to the next door apartment and knocked she kept quiet trying to listen but she heard clearly how somebody got close to the door and locked it at that point a point she was freaking out so she looked at her boyfriend and they knew they had to report it so even though this could have been nothing maybe the mom bringing a boyfriend in or whatever the case may be this could have been nothing but she decides to call 911 and explains within minutes of hearing this whole thing uh, what she heard and that she wanted somebody to go and check on the apartment because she tried but again somebody locked the door from the inside so by this time it was 508 when the deputy got there and started knocking but before he did that he tried to listen he couldn't hear anything so he knocked and at the point i mean <laughs> At that point, he hears somebody walking around and he knows. I mean, it doesn't matter if he's a small town cop. I mean, he knows somebody's still inside. This is an older building. You know when there's a creaking noise that it comes from the floor. And he immediately knew somebody was walking inside the apartment. In the meantime, okay... And you can hear all this. You can hear the dispatch lady. I think her name was, is, I'm hoping, <laughs> Robin. Uh, she called the building landlord 
Rick and she said, you know, something's going on and we need to get in the apartment. We're knocking, they're not opening, but I think something's going on, you know, and the landlord, he says, well, I'm around. I'll go by right now and open the door. I have a master key. So the remember the officer arrived at 508 and he waited for the landlord to get there while the landlord is still there he knocks again and he can still hear somebody walking inside uh it, the door was finally open at 533 you know so it's been a while um and uh it was very apparent that yeah indeed something happened here this fetch lady at this point calls marissa remember the girl that reported the whole thing and she tells her you know something did happen and i need you to go outside and flag the emergency vehicle okay marissa does that very confused very scared what's going on nobody's telling her anything but going back inside the apartment the officer started cpr on a what he described as an unresponsive male who he thought was around 10 years old. Um, this boy had no pulse and had no, I mean, he was not breathing. So he was trying anyways CPR while he was waiting for help. Now, this is, this is interesting. And this is the part of the story that you're like, okay, how do you know all these details? Well, this is the kind of conversation that you would um, listen to if you watch this documentary because you can hear the officer talking to this patch, okay? These are all recordings that were released. Um, and um, at this point, he's giving all this information to this patch and he mentions that the mother is Tandy Cyrus. Remember, this is a small town, so names, people, faces, pretty much everyone knew who she was. Uh, apparently, dispatch said something like, isn't she John Jones' ex-girlfriend? And, okay, John Jones, I'll, I'll tell you who he is later, but the officer tells her, yep, that is the one. So she was wondering if maybe she should call him to try to reach her, even though it was the ex-girlfriend. Before she does call him, she decides to call the chief of Potsdam police at the time, of course, and not only explain the unusual situation they're dealing with, but she also mentions the mom's name and he kind of thinks he knows her. I mean, I think he said something like, uh, how do I know her? Or, you know, something like that. Um, he didn't quite remember her, but then this patcher told him, you know, John Jones' ex-girlfriend. And he was like, oh, that is why. Yeah. And he kind of put a face to the name. Now, he also asked dispatch, and again, this is a conversation that it's recorded and, and that's what's shared. Um, who was with him and he said nobody where was he he you know he's going to the hospital so the chief says you know what call john and see if he can find her now it is not very clear if dispatch call him and 
I am assuming that they didn't or maybe they did call him but by the time that they called him he already knew about it because they didn't make a big deal out of it I kind of the documentary kind of left me hanging there in assuming things but I'll tell you the rest of the story and you'll know why I came up with that uh, conclusion or I came up to that idea now at the same time the hospital supervisors uh, calls the police to talk you know a little bit about um, the family so um, this can't remember I think it's the superintendent or you know the, the hospital supervisor and I can't remember if it was a woman or, from, or a man again a recorded conversation she calls I'm gonna call I'm gonna say she she calls um, the police talks to dispatch which I'm assuming is the same um, Robin girl lady uh, it seemed like it was her, not 100% sure, but she says, you know, that she got an insurance card with the name Tandy Cyrus. And we're wondering if that was the mom of the boy. And uh, this badge confirmed that was the mom. At 6.08, Tandy called John to ask him if he could go with her to the hospital. That is when john jones claims that he learned about the situation remember the police has been um playing around with the idea of calling him to try to find her because they were not able to again i can't tell you if police contacted him after or before tandy talked to him now tandy run and this is how she found out about the whole thing. She ran into a few parents that knew what was going on to Garrett. So when they saw her, they were like, where were you? I mean, you have to go to the hospital. Uh, and and that's how she found out. Uh, now, John Jones, just in case you are wondering why is he such a very well-known guy? Well, he was a sheriff deputy and in fact was Tandy's ex-boyfriend, as I mentioned before. That was the connection. Everyone knew him, not only because he lived in town, but he was a deputy and also the ex-boyfriend. Now, Tandy went to the hospital. Garrett's uncle, the, you know, the, the dad's brother, uh, went also. And uh, the paternal grandmother. Now, as you can probably imagine, it was a hard moment. And they were hoping that Garrett will, you know wake up and not only be alive but kind of tell them what really happened at this point all we know is that he is in the hospital and he is about to die but they don't know really what happened i mean can you guess who would want to hurt him the next day um the autopsy showed that he died and not of uh, natural causes. Um, I mean, it was strangulation and suffocation. So who would want to hurt a sixth grader? And it's, it's just beyond me. It's just beyond the family. It's beyond the town. Um, 
He was born on August 13th, uh, 1999. So he was born a month and a day before my uh, oldest boy, who's now 20 years old. So you can only imagine what they missed out by losing Garrett, you know, in his sixth grade can clearly remember my son's sixth grade teacher and I remember him being in sixth grade and oh my gosh I mean change things change so much um now he's you know doing his second semester in college and it, it is just I, I I can't even I I mean I try to relate with dates and stuff so I can put myself in the family's shoes and really uh, this it's hard I mean heartbreaking who does that I mean who strangles a little boy in his own home who'd hate him or his family so much that they were willing to do that doesn't make sense now if we go back uh, to the day you know where they found Garrett unresponsive around 5:53, dispatcher robin i've been calling her robin let's keep it that way i think uh she she calls lieutenant mark murray now i don't know if at the time he was a lieutenant i know that he is now and that he was featured in this hbo documentary that makes him look bad i mean there's no other way to put it um I am not, I'm not the one saying, you know, that he's a bad person, but this documentary just makes him look bad. So props to him for it, even though things look really bad for him. Uh, in the documentary, he still was willing to be part of it and give his version of the story. Now, dispatcher, again, she called Lieutenant Murray was a key person in this case um, at around 5.53. So this was while they were trying to help Garrett, who was unresponsive at the apartment. Uh, after they took Garrett, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to know that something happened. You know, uh, it's it's not common for a 12 year old to die of natural causes so they were treating the apartment as a murder scene criminal scene kind of thing uh, forensics uh, find actually the blinds that were bent outwards in the third bedroom and it looked like whoever did this um, to Garrett left through that window in a hurry they also found that the tile on the ledge below the window was cracked. They knew. I mean, at this point, state police was called. So even though they didn't know what was going on, they knew that somebody did that to Garrett. So they actually knew from the time that they arrived at that apartment and were starting to go through physical evidence and treating as a crime scene, they had an idea of what happened. To Garrett and how the suspect or the killer I should say escaped even though they did not inform the police and this is normal procedure 
Now, remember that there were two different neighbors that were, I don't even know, just being around, I should say, uh, while this was going on. Uh, they talked to Marissa, who was the one that called 911, and they also talked to Shannon and Andrew, who were changing the tire outside. Now, when they gave their statements, they said that they didn't see anybody, okay? Uh, they, you know, they told us as much as they knew, like, Shannon heard noises in the second floor, she looked up, she couldn't see anybody, Andrew was kind of changing the tire, didn't pay, pay much attention, but still, you know, they, they just couldn't see anything. But after that, they came up with a suspect, okay? Okay, there's nothing there, but they come up with a sus suspect. The mother, uh, the mother's ex-boyfriend, and this is not John Jones, this is Oral Hillary. And I'm going to call him Nick, because, aka Nick, uh -huh, <laughs> that he just... Uh, I guess that's that's how he was known as Nick instead of Oral. Um, they knew that Garrett didn't like him because he was too strict. And at one point, this guy Nick lived with Tandy and the boys. And apparently he was the kind of guy who didn't want to let the boys watch TV or stay up late on a school night. I mean... It's, it's it's just a different parenting style, I guess. There was never some kind of um, argument made that, you know, the guy was abusive or anything like that. It's just that his parenting style was not what Garrett liked. So, the police had a hunch, which they're allowed to have that. We all are. So, and they thought this guy, Nick probably had something to do with it because Garrett was kind of in the way between him and the mom that's the stupidest idea ever I understand that's motive for court but whoever thinks I'm gonna get rid of the kid so I can be with the mother they're out of their mind listen by the time that the mother loses the boy I don't think she'll be interested in you and it's gonna take a really long time for a mother to have to move forward from that so even if it's a motive it just sounds so dumb in my opinion but you know motive is motive court physical evidence that is what it's gonna count in the end and having a motive it's one of the things that they look for in the beginning so the next day on october 25th the da investigator dan manor calls the lead investigator um Lieutenant Mark Murray and offered help and asked him honestly. I heard this conversation and it couldn't be more obvious. Um, the DA investigator really wanted to know if they had a suspect and Lieutenant Murray was like, well, we have a somebody, but he was not being direct. He wouldn't say, you know, I have this person or whatever. He mentioned Gary Snell, which is a a guy that lived the next town over who worked for state police and he said that he had and i'm quoting him strong feelings about this particular suspect listen i hope if you are ever going to charge me with something that you come up with a whole lot more than i have a strong feeling because 
That sounded so bad. And this is a conversation between a lieutenant and a DA investigator. So I know, I understand, there are people, they're allowed to talk in whatever way they want. But I'm sorry, strong feeling, it's just gonna hurt a little bit. Now, the guy that they were talking about, again, was Orville, um, this guy, Nick Hillary. I'm going to call him Nick because I'm going to butcher him every time. He was from Jamaica. I don't really know if he was born. I am assuming that he was born in Jamaica and then brought maybe very young to the States. Um, and at the time, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Nick because this guy... There's a lot to know about him, but he was a soccer coach in a nearby university, the University of is it Clarkson. Yeah, that's the one he was working at. I mean, he was a coach of varsity boys soccer. And um, that's as much as I'm going to tell you about him right now. But just so you know, the first two days, the media came up with their conclusions, okay? One of them is uh, that a bunch of kids beat him to death, you know, Garrett, um, they, that they were playing a game called Knocked Out. And another theory was that they had a sexual bullying situation, whatever that means. The school was worried. The superintendent called the police to find out if this was true and... Really, the police confirmed that they never talked to the media about it. And that was just things that they came up with or maybe overheard somebody thinking that that could have happened. Now, at that point, the next morning, Tandy goes to talk to the police. John Jones was with her. Apparently, they spent the night together. Uh, Being a friend, don't care. Just part of the story. Later on, we will learn a little bit more about this night, but... Um, John Jones goes with Tandy to the police station the next day, so after Garrett died, and he is like, hey, can I be in the little interview with Tandy as moral support? And everyone knew him. I mean, he was a colleague and everything. They were like, why not? Stay. Now, the police at that point, they tell Tandy that this looks like a homicide, um, gave updates and then asked a bunch of questions like who has a key, what she had in a wallet that was at the house, why her bra was on the floor, why the mail is in the nightstand, has Nick been in the apartment when he was not supposed to, does he have a key, was Garrett supposed to be there or at school, did the lander- landlord change the keys when she moved in? And, I mean, she explained that the last time she talked to Garrett was around 4.30 p.m. while he was still at school. The police told her they were interested in talking to Nick. So, all of this that I just mentioned happened while they were interviewing Tandy. This is, of course, something that you can watch in the documentary as it's happening. Uh, You can see, you know, real-time conversation, what she answered, and also subtitles, because in some parts, it's it's very low. And the police is telling her that, but really, after Garrett died, two hours later, they already went and talked to Nick. I mean, they called him. They asked him to go to the station, but he couldn't. He had his kids. So Lieutenant Murray, who happened to be 
friendly with him. They he, they knew each other and went to his house and kind of interview him over 10 minutes. He wrote what he was wearing, that he would look like he was fresh out of the shower. He also mentioned his demeanor. He looked upset after the news. I mean, who wouldn't be upset, right? But we have to talk about who Nick is if you want a little bit more of the story. According to everyone in uh, pretty much everyone in the town, he was a friendly guy. Everyone knew him. He was involved in the community and very friendly with most people, including Lieutenant Murray. As I mentioned before, he was coaching uh, Clarkson University's men's varsity soccer team. He was a player himself and a very well-known one. Um, he played for another local university, St. Lawrence. And he lived with, at the time, while he was playing for this university, he lived with another five Jamaican friends. And uh, they called that house the House of Brotherhood. And they won the national championship while they played for the university. And according to Nick, it was, you know, he was pretty good and his teammates as well. But it was a good team overall. They, I think they only lost about three games. So needless to say, he, this guy was known there. He was their pride. He was, you know, people knew him. He was part of the community. He was part of, you know, those five Jamaican boys that put them in the championship and... Of course, he was very athletic. Uh, later on, he would be described by a um, former district attorney as having an eight-pack. Okay, So he was young, he was handsome, successful, charming. And he happened to be in a relationship. And he had kids. We will talk about that later. But you should know he was also a black guy. I mean... It's part of the story and you have to know that in order to understand a lot of the allegations, okay? He met Tandy in 2010. She was a bartender of the bar that Nick and other coaches frequented after work. And so Tandy played soccer herself in high school. So they started a conversation that ended up with a mutual interest. There are several text messages that prove that he was into her as much as she was into him. Nick wrote, Miss Cyrus, you have been running through my mind since I woke up and I can't stop thinking about you. Not that I want to. And then Tandy would write, Mr. Hillary, I have been thinking about you all day as well. I can't wait to get home to you. I love you. Tandy was described as open-minded, caring single mother of two boys. And she happened to be hot. <laughs> that is how she was described by most people. Apparently, they started a relationship and moved in together with both of their kids. Um, I think at the time, he moved in with the older daughter and um, Tandy's both, both boys. I mean, now you're probably wondering, well, he moved in with Tandy. What happened to his partner, you know, the partner, the mother of the kids. And I'm going to have to leave that for the end because it kind of ties down with a lot of other things. But on March 23rd, 2011, we see some things that are a bit more changing tone. 
Okay, apparently this remember this they 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 started talking in October. Okay, but then by March they're living together. They're kind of mixing the the, the kids, um, and things are kind of changing. And you can read it in their text messages. Um, you know, Tandy was like addressing G tonight. I'm assuming that's Garrett. On a few things, I know he needs help in all areas, but I'm not a teacher. No arguments. I need your help. I love you. Now, there's also another message on March fourth, where it's he says, "Remind me to talk with you about Shanna, her behavior. That Shanna is um, Nick's daughter, and how she's looking at life in general. I will be needing your help on this one. I love you." Then you can see some messages from Nick, like "Good morning, nice to talk to you, have a great day." They had a good relationship, but you can see with time that their problem was the kids and not agreeing on parenting styles. Trying to, but it seemed like really did not work.、Uh, then things changed, and Garrett did not like Nick or his way of parenting again. So they decided to move to different places and tried to work as a couple living apart. So while Nick worked, Nick worked on their relationship with Garrett. They could eventually move in together in the future. Now Tandy was looking for a place, and her ex John Jones at the time, you know, she met Nick. They were dating. So this is the very recent ex-boyfriend before Nick. And he was like, "Well, I I can talk to somebody. I know the landlord at at one hundred Market Street Apartments, and、um, you know I can help her. I can help you find your apartment. And I feel like John was kind of helping and glad that she left Nick. He was under the impression that Tandy and Nick were not together anymore. And now, so he was kind of glad, you know that." Okay, she left me for this guy, but now she left him. She might come back with me, or you know, just be. He was kind of glad that she left the guy. But after a year being separated, and Nick and Tandy, I should say, and living in separate homes,、uh, Tandy and Cyrus decided to remain friends, but not date anymore because the things didn't get any better, and.、Um, Tandy even messaged him and said, "You know, I would love to work in this relationship, but my kids come first."、Um, she also said she didn't want to hurt him, but the boys came first.、Um, so this is this, their story. That is their breakup story. And part of the story was the boys not liking him because he was a strict and he had a different parenting method. So, the boys not liking him was the first thing that made him a suspect in a very cold case at this point. The interview was really friendly again, the one, the very first one, and it only lasted about ten minutes. Now Nick called Tandy after the、uh, lieutenant left, but she never picked up the phone. So he left a message. I'm here for you. Please call me, and that was on October twenty fifth at twelve o five a.m. So it was the night after、um, Garrett died at seven. This was about midnight.、Um, so already into the twenty fifth. So 
Remember, the next day on the 25th morning uh, was when Tandy was going to go to the um, police station. So uh, when she got there, she was interviewed and she also played the voicemail to the police who informed her that Nix was the guy they were investigating. Now, before I close this part one of the video of the podcast, I have to tell you a little bit something that it's going to help this uh, narrative. Um, remember at the beginning we talk about how wonderful the small town is, how everyone knew everyone and blah, blah, blah. Well, this amazing town had other things that um, they had to keep in mind at the time. At that specific time, the town was struggling because... Um, well, for lack of a better word, because there were no jobs. I mean, the economy was booming some time ago, but things closed down and employment in the area was very high for those that decided to stay. This is a town close to the Canadian border. Not to say that Canadians are a bunch of druggies or anything like that, but very, I mean, every single border in the world deals with a different kind of level of this issue. That's what it is has nothing to do with who your neighbor is. And in the area, a lot of people work in correctional facilities. And uh, I think there were nine in the area. I googled that. They didn't tell, they didn't say in the documentary, but I googled there's nine of them. And this is a white people town. And the only interaction that they had with black people is with the inmate, inmates in the federal prison. So it's not pre- you know, it's not people from the area, but federal prison will have people of all colors and from all places. So according to people in the area, kids also are known for getting in trouble because there is not much to do. So they get together to hang out and sometimes be naughty together. There are also four universities within 10 miles, Canton, Clarkson, St. Lawrence and Potsdam. So there are college bars and activities, pro- protests, and a little bit more open-minded ideas, I guess. But really, the wonderful part of the town of being small and everyone knowing each other and everything, that's true. But this is the other side of that same coin. Now, this is where things start to get a little bit crazy. Remember the law of triangle or square, honestly. Remember Nick was graduate from St. Lawrence. Um, he was very well known in the area for being in the team that won the champion the championship. So remember John Jones? How can you forget that guy with that rhyme kind of last name, right? Well, he was Tandy's boyfriend when she started to talk to Nick. We talked about this. They met in October, started talking, liking each other, texting, whatever. I am not judging her. I'm just saying that at the same time that she met Nick and was kind of talking to the guy, she was living with this guy, John Jones. Uh, They were serious and they were living together. According to him, they were going through a rough patch and according according to him it's john right and argued a lot in some of those arguments i mean nick name was brought up 
But the last straw was one morning when John sees Tandy and Nick very early in the morning in the same car. Then John decided to pay a visit to Nick's house, who happened to share with his partner, the mother of the kids. He went there and asked him, what are you doing with Tandy? Blah, blah, blah. Nick says, we're just friends. If you want to know more, just talk to Tandy. Mind you, again, Nick was there with his children and the mother of his children. And according to John, he ended things with Tandy over a text message. Classy. I think he said, um, I mean, I can't remember really how he said that he put it on the text message, but basically that he was done. And since that wasn't enough for him because she was not like crying for the guy and begging him for to stay with her, um, he decided to go in, uh, he decided to arrange a run into Stacia, who was a Nick's partner at the time and the mother of the kids, and ask casually, what do you think about Nick and Tandy's relationship? Or something like that. Well, Miss Flash, she had no idea. And she was a strong-minded lady, so she got home. She decided to cut Nick's clothes and threw them out. And a few other things. Um, apparently, uh, it was so bad that she even got arrested. Uh, Nick's car was also keyed. But they could uh, never prove who was it. Could have been John, could have been her. I mean, John was furious and vengeful. He was losing his girlfriend. He didn't want to break up with. He described her as beautiful. Bart. Okay, this is kind of this kind of bothers me a little bit. So listen to this. He described her as a beautiful bartender that a lot of guys wanted to have, but he was the one who got her, and that he loved that feeling that other guys wanted to be with her. Sorry, that's kind of messed up in my opinion. I mean, you can be proud of having a beautiful girlfriend. There's nothing wrong with that. But just saying that he kind of fed on the idea that other guys wanted to be with her. Kind of sick. I don't know. But he also was, I mean, it was the fact that he was losing his girlfriend to a black guy. That was a problem. Everyone knew him, and they knew that that was what hurt him the most. Now, after all that nonsense, this happens. And now, all of a sudden, John became Prince Charming. And the supportive friend that Tandy needed, I mean, he was, eh. He was that guy to support her. I, I mean, at this point, everyone knew about Nick being questioned. Uh, Garrett's father's side of the family believed that he did it because Garrett didn't like him and he wanted to be with Tandy so he must have something to do with that at this point the police told Tandy about their suspicion on Nick again and it's kind of sad that they, they told her that just by what the hunch that they had but she ran with it, honestly, and I don't blame her because um, everyone around her was telling her that Nick did it. So much so that she even wrote on her statement, I replayed everything in my mind a million times. And when I put everything together, I can't think of other person who'd want to hurt Garrett, end quote. 
she was told from left and right that Nick was probably the one who killed her son. Nick was devastated at the idea of tending thinking that he could have done it. He even said in one of the, the little clips that they share there in the um, documentary, we traveled to other countries together, we lived together, we broke up for the well-being of one of our child. Um, we even remained friends and would hang out while all of a sudden I am capable of doing this to her child. I was myself while we were, we were together. Doesn't she know me? He wondered. And that kind of... Um, that was kind of a, a point, I guess. And that's where I'm going to end today's episode because... It's a very, very long story that you need to hear the details. But this is where it gets to the point where you start to understand a little bit both sides, you know, the mother's side who has everyone telling her, hey, it's Nick and the media making up stories and saying that they had evidence, they had no evidence. And, and so she feeling like, okay, if Nick didn't do it, who did it? This doesn't make sense. And then on the other side, you can see Nick being like, oh my goodness, I live with this lady. We, we spend much time together. I brought my daughter to live with her. I wanted to be that parent figure for her kids. And we even split up because of the well-being of Garrett specifically. Why would all of a sudden I decide to do that? What was going to fix him getting rid of Garrett? And now the investigation really begins. So this is just part one and a little bit of the beginning of the story. I hope that you join me tomorrow as we explore part two. And we talk a little bit more about that quote-unquote evidence that is so circumstantial that some of it does not exist. Thanks for being here, guys. I hope you join me tomorrow and have a great day. Bye.